but we're just going to do a couple messages on Christmas, and then um, uh, we will uh, have a Christmas Eve service as well as a Christmas Day service, and then uh, after that, um, New Year. Looking forward to that. Ken's going to bring a message on the 1st, January 1st, for our congregation, so we're looking forward to hearing from that as well. But this morning, as we turn our hearts to God's Word in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, I ask the, the question, why Jesus came? Why Jesus came? Why did he do this? And I think one commentator said, these are the two most important questions you could ever ask someone is, who is Jesus Christ, first of all? Who is he? And why did he come to earth? Because if you get either one of those wrong, <laughs> you're going to miss out. And the scriptures tell us, uh, Martin Luther said this, um, he said, if anyone stands firm and right on this point, that Jesus Christ is true God and true man who died and rose again for us, all the other articles of the Christian faith will fall into place for him and firmly sustain him. If you miss the truth of who Christ is, you're going to miss it all. You can't have that as a faulty foundation and build something upon a misunderstanding of the deity of Christ. Or if your Christology is messed up in some way theologically, you're going to have issues. And this is really what Paul was telling us in, even in the book of Ephesians. Um, he tells us that that in his writings over and over again, that Christ is the chief treasure, he says, that he's the basis, he's the, you could call him the foundation, uh, the sum total of all things, in whom and under whom all are gathered. It tells us that in him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge hidden in Christ. And um, if you look at the other hand, um, we believe that Jesus is the truth, right? And if you look at the other hand, all heresies, all errors in theological matters, all idolaters, idolatries, offenses, uh, abuses, any other kind of ungodliness in the church have originally arisen because of this article or part of the Christian faith concerning Jesus Christ that has either been misaligned or despised or even lost. You can really get off the tracks quick when you get an improper understanding of who Christ is. And, and clearly, the, 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 when you consider Christ, all the years that we've known about Christ and the Bible and everything, there's a constant um, just upheaval, really, uh, against not just God and his word, but Christ specifically. Uh, people find that offensive in so many different walks of life. And a lot of heresies mitigate against the precious name of Christ. And if you ever ask yourself, why is that? I mean, you don't hear a lot of heresies about Buddha or any of the other ones, right? I mean, you just don't, but they're all focused on Christ. And so when you... Look at the Christmas story this year. I, I pray that it, you won't just look about it. Look at the Christmas story as a, a birth of a little baby who would grow up 
and become a great moral um, teacher and example for all of us, even though Jesus did those things. That's not the sum total. Rather, it's really a, a profound story. The Christmas story is a profound story of the birth of Jesus the Savior, of Jesus the Savior. And I don't want you to miss that this year. And that's why there in verse 21 it says, And he will bear a, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name, what? Jesus. For it is he who will save his people from their sins. The Hebrew name there, Joshua. In Hebrew, in the Old Testament, Jesus, we, we say today, it, it really means Jehovah is salvation. Jehovah is salvation. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, then you don't know him at all. He can't just be a good guy. He can't just be a good teacher. Because Jesus Christ, for his own purpose, he came into this world for the express purpose of saving his people from their sins. That's what the Bible says over and over and over again. And so I want to examine this verse by asking a couple questions. First of all, who came? Who came? Who does it say came? Secondly, what is the purpose of his coming? And whom did he purpose to save? And then lastly, what did he actually do to save them? This is very elementary, but I think the first question here will answer for us the question of Jesus' identity. And the last three basically tell us the main reason why Christ was born, why Christ came to earth. Well, let's look at the first one there. Who came? Who came? The context shows that this was no ordinary birth. We know this. We've heard the Christmas story over and over. Mary was with child. Not by Joseph, but by what? The Holy Spirit. We know the story. Apart from normal relations with a man. And this is, of course, we know this as the doctrine of the what? The virgin birth. The virgin birth of Christ. And there's a lot of skeptics. There's a lot of people that reject this because it's miraculous. It's not something that just happens every day. This is, that's what a miracle is. You know, so many times we, we call things miracles, and, and they're far from miracles. But there's a lot of commentators that have issues with the virgin birth of Christ. One of them you may know is William Barclay, wonderful theologian in so many different ways, benefited from his writings and his commentaries. But for example, he assured his readers in the Gospel of Matthew, the Daily Study Bible there, he says, our church he was from Scotland, does not compel us to accept the virgin birth in the literal and physical sense. He says, this is one of those doctrines on which the church says that we have full liberty to come to our own conviction. Wow. This is a very smart man. But he did not, did not believe in a virgin birth of Christ. Um, he later calls the virgin birth this, a crude fact, and argues that the point of the narrative is, well, what, what he's really trying to say here in the scripture is that in the birth of Jesus, the Spirit of God was operative as never before in this world. Denies the 
virgin birth, but kind of goes on from there. But stop and think about it. Matthew, one of the 12 disciples, uh, had direct access both to who? Mary and Jesus. And another disciple, Luke, who we read the Christmas account, Christ's birth in Luke as well. He was a doctor, so he was no um, you know, idiot. He, he knew what he was talking about. He probably interviewed Mary and states that he carefully researched the gospel in, in Luke 1.3. And both of these men, Matthew and Luke, affirmed the virgin birth of Jesus. And so to reject this as actual history is to reject the testimony of, of two independent, really in their own right, historians who lived at the time and whose writings have been accepted as factual history by thousands of scholars, and they attest to the virgin birth of Christ. The only reason, really, for rejecting such a miraculous event is a, a bias against all miracles. And some people have that bias because it's a bias against God himself. And uh, they don't believe that God is able to interrupt our daily lives and the laws of creation and everything according to his purpose and do something miraculous. They don't believe that. And so they say basically, well, that's unreasonable to think that it was actually a virgin birth. This is more symbolic and things like that. It's not really historically true. And you say, well, why is it, why are you spending so much time? Why is it so important to affirm Jesus' virgin birth? It's very important. First of all, the virgin birth is essential to affirm the deity of Jesus Christ. Deity meaning that Jesus Christ was God, is God. If he was born of a human father um, and a human mother, like other people are born through the natural biological process, then he's not God in human flesh. Couldn't be. Under those circumstances, he might be a man upon whom God's spirit rested in some unusual sense and gave him an ability to teach and do some miraculous things, but it would still make him just a man. It would make him a man just like you and I. His existence would have begun at conception. And he could not have been eternal. Therefore, he couldn't be the eternal God in human flesh. And yet Jesus claimed many times in his writings that he was sent to us from where? From heaven, from the Father, right? The Father sent him. Assuming... I mean, if, if you come from somewhere, you have to exist in that place, right? I mean, if I said earlier, you know, uh, hey, you know, this morning I was down at Safeway, and, well, that would assume that I existed at Safeway. I mean, you couldn't say that if somebody just had a baby here right now, boom, baby. Oh, when that baby was at Safeway, well, the baby wasn't at Safeway earlier because it never it didn't exist, right? But Christ says, no... You know, I came from heaven. Therefore, he is stating his eternality. And uh, he told the Jews in John 8, 58, before Abraham was born, what? I am. 
Not I was. <laughs> Not, oh, I beat him to it. No, I, 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 I am. Which means I have always been, in all eternity, existing. Secondly, the virgin birth not only affirms the deity of Christ, but it affirms the sinless humanity of Jesus Christ. See, if, if, if somehow you could affirm the deity of Christ, but you don't affirm the sinless humanity of Jesus Christ, we have a problem. We have a problem. Because if he was born of natural parents, he was born a sinner like everybody else, right? That's what the Bible says. Since the fall. Matter of fact, Kai just taught on that uh, last Wednesday night. It's on the church app there. You can listen to Kainoa's message on Genesis chapter 3, 6, and 7. But if, if he was born of natural parents, guess what? He would have needed a savior, just like we do. He wouldn't have been anything special. He would have needed his savior himself if he had his own sin to deal with. If that's true, if he had his own sin to deal with, if he was just a human being, he could not have died as a substitute in God's economy for someone else. That wouldn't have worked. Just like we can't go to a cross and nail ourselves to the cross and say, okay, I'm going to go to heaven based on my sacrifice. Why is that? Because we're not a pure sacrifice. We're tainted by sin. And God demands a holy sacrifice. And that's why Christ was born and took on a human body because in taking on that human body, it allowed him to die. If Christ wouldn't have taken on a human body, guess what? God can't die. There's no way. God's eternal. And so when Jesus came to earth and he took on that human body, the incarnation we call it, he was able to go to the cross and give up his flesh, his human side, as a sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice for our sins. To be born as a man who fully shared our humanity, Jesus had to have had a human parent. God couldn't have just dropped him here. He had to have at least one human parent to be born, and that had to be Mary. And through the work of the Holy Spirit in the virgin birth, Jesus was born as fully human and yet perfect and sinless in every way. Wouldn't you like to be that? <laughs> I mean, we struggle every day, don't we, with our, our sinful flesh. We're far from sinless. Thank God that God gave a sacrifice for our sins through Christ. And when we come to Christ, we can put our faith and trust, hey, Jesus is going to keep us. We don't have to keep working at our salvation. Okay, we are saved from our sin. We are, our sins are forgiven Past, present, future, through the work of Christ. As a matter of fact, the angel told Mary that because the Holy Spirit would come upon her and the power of the Most High would overshadow her, it says this in Luke chapter 1, verse 35. It says this, For that reason the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. So it tells us the reason for this virgin birth is so that Christ could be Sinless in every way, and yet still human. Now, I grew up in a church where I was taught about the Immaculate Conception, the Roman Catholic Church. And they weren't talking about Jesus, they were talking about Mary. 
They believed that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was conceived immaculately, supernaturally, just like Jesus. Because you couldn't venerate another human being, right? So they've turned her into kind of like a god. And so they pray to Mary. They do all these things to Mary. Mariology, they worship her. But even though Mary herself was not immaculately, immaculately conceived, Luke 1.47 indicates that she needed a Savior. She cries out to the Lord as her Savior. Jesus was kept from her sin. Even though she wasn't sinless, Jesus was kept from her sin, and he was born fully human, yet without sin, the Bible says. The angel in Matthew one twenty three basically cites Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. He's quoting that as being ultimately fulfilled when this woman, Mary, who had not had relations with a man, was bore a son by the Holy Spirit. And this son is none other than Emmanuel, right? God what? With us. God with us. As a sinless man, Jesus could represent the human race now as a sin bearer for our sacrifice. To God for our sins. Um, as God the Son, his sacrifice was acceptable before God the Father. You say, well, how do you know it was acceptable? How do you know God accepted Jesus' sacrifice? Because the Bible says that what? He was buried. He went to the cross. He died. And what happened? On the third day, God cashed a check, right? He, he rose from the grave. Just in case there's any misunderstanding, I just want to make it very clear. God's saying, hey, kind of like explanation point, yeah, I'm going to raise him from the dead. As a sign of victory over sin and death. And the angel tells Joseph in Matthew 121 there that he is to name this miraculous child Jesus, for it will, this child will is he who will save his people from their sins, it says. The Greek word Jesus, for Jesus there, is the equivalence of the Hebrew word Joshua, like I said. But it means Yahweh is salvation. Yahweh is salvation. And in, in the verb tense here of this, of the, the shorter form of, of Joshua, it focuses on, basically in short, it says he will certainly save. Not just he will save, he will certainly save. It puts the stress on the verb. Since for the the Jews, a, a person's name had significance, culturally our names have significance a lot of times, the name Jesus points us to the very essence of his being, the very reason why he came. Namely, that he is what? He is Jesus the Savior. The Savior. Jesus Christ, Christ means basically Jesus's, or uh, uh, the Jewish Messiah or the anointed one, the chosen one. Charles Spurgeon points out this, that since the Father knows Jesus perfectly, when he directed that his name be Jesus, he was giving him the best and most appropriate name possible. By giving Jesus that name, the Father commissioned him to save sinners. And this constitutes really the ground of our appeal to God for salvation. 
So our answer basically to who came is this, Jesus Christ. He was born of a virgin, and it's none other than the eternal God in human flesh, and that he came to earth primarily as a savior. That's why he came. He is an example to us. He is a good teacher, but that's not the primary reason. The reason why he came was to die as our savior. Secondly, what's the purpose in his coming? Why did he do all this? Well, he tells us right there to save what? His people from their sins. To understand this phrase, you have to understand what the word save means. This is kind of like one-on-one basic stuff, but in the original language, this is kind of a radical word. Because you don't save someone who just needs a little help. Right? They just need a little help. They don't need to be saved. You save someone who is unable to do anything for himself or herself. That's who needs saving. If you saw a little child in a pool and they were swimming across the pool, you wouldn't jump in and go, oh, they need saved if they're swimming. No, you wouldn't. They wouldn't need saved. But if you saw a child in the pool and they went under a couple times, then maybe, you know, hopefully you would jump in and save them. (laughs) Because you'd know they need saving. They're drowning. A person who is lost at sea needs saving. A person who has stopped breathing needs saving. This means that prior to Jesus saving them, whoever this is, his people were helpless. They were hopeless. They were lost in their sin. There was no other way. They were alienated from God under his righteous, just judgment. And guess what? They were even unable to free themselves from their condition. Because if you can save yourself, you'd save yourself. Wouldn't you? I mean, when do we cry out for help? Hopefully when we need it. A savior is one who has the power, really, the miraculous power to rescue people who could not rescue themselves. That's the meaning here. Jesus has that God-given power. Why? Because he is God. He's sinless. And he has that power to save his people from their sins. It's important to affirm this because today in our churches we're hearing a lot of things, even in evangelical Bible-believing churches, by the way, people believe that Jesus' ability to save anyone, let alone his people, if Jesus is going to save anyone, it's all contingent upon what? That person exercising their free will. You ever hear that? I hear that all the time. Think about this. They say that he, Jesus, desperately wants to save them. That he longs to save them. That he does everything that he can do to save them. And you know what? He would save them if he could. But he can't save them. You know why? Because of their unwillingness to be saved. That's what that doctrine teaches. So picture Jesus, he sits in heaven, (laughs) wishing that everyone would say yes to his salvation. 
But really, he's unable to save anyone. Because it all depends on the sinner's free will, they say. That seems a little shaky. That doesn't line up with what Scripture says. One writer, Dave Hunt, actually says this. He goes as far as to say that if God could save everyone but chose only to save some, God is immoral. Wow. He wrote that in his book, What Love Is This? And he's coming from a free will, kind of a, you know, it all depends on us kind of mentality when it comes to our salvation. But note, I mean, right here in our text, in Matthew 121, it does not say, it does not say this, for he hopes that someone will respond to his offer and be saved. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say he's going to give it his best chance, his best shot, and do all that he can to save these people, but really it depends on their choosing to be saved. It doesn't say that. Thank God. Thank God the text says he will save his people from their sins. He will do it. There isn't any human contingency in this formula. The Bible says over and over and over again, we don't have time to go through all the verses, but you want them, I'll give them to you, but salvation is from the Lord. Salvation comes from the Lord. It doesn't come from us. It doesn't come from our desire to be saved. It comes from the Lord. When Almighty God purposes to save a person, guess what? He saves them. And we can all attest to that, those of us who have been saved. In Isaiah 14, 24, the Lord declares, and he's declaring this as a way of an oath. So God is kind of swearing by himself. He says, surely, just as I have intended, so it has happened. And just as I have planned, so it will stand. This is the sovereign God of the universe that talks to us in terms that sometimes we can't understand. But he says, you know what? When I intend to do something, I carry it out. In the context of that verse in Isaiah 14, 24, it's referring to God breaking the Assyrian army's power. But think about it. If he's able to do that, to break the power of a, of a mighty empire, you don't think he could actually save people from their sins? In Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10, God declares this, For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient of times, things which have not been done saying, my purpose, listen, will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. This is the God we serve. We don't serve a God who's waiting up in heaven to wait for us to do something so then he can do something. If that were the case, God would not be sovereign. In that context, in Isaiah, he's referring to raising up Cyrus to accomplish God's purpose for Israel. But again, if, if the Almighty can raise up and take down a pagan king to accomplish his sovereign purpose, I, I think he can actually save people from their sins. 
Well, Matthew 121 is really a fulfillment of Psalm 130, verse 8. The psalmist in that psalm in 130 is, is overwhelmed by his own sin. Have you ever been there? Something's just crept in your life, and, you can't, and you're just at the depths of despair, and you're, man, God, I, I am overwhelmed by this sin in my life, whatever it might be. Well, that's the psalmist, and he's overwhelmed, and he's in the depths, and he's about ready to go under, take his last breath, and just, and what's he do? He cries out in desperation to God in that psalm, it tells us. And he recognizes that if, if God were to mark the iniquities, in other words, if God's in heaven keeping track of all of our sins, the Bible says there, he says, no one could stand in his holy presence. We sing a song like that, right? If God were to mark our, our iniquities, who would stand before God? If God kept score, guess what? We're always on a losing end. Always. Always. But he says there in verse 4, Psalm 130, but there is forgiveness with you, psalmist says. There's forgiveness with you, God, that you may be feared. Thank God for his forgiveness. And based upon the hope of, the, of God's promises, he encourages Israel, the psalmist does in that psalm, to hope in the Lord. He says in verses 7 to 8, for the Lord... For with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with him is abundant redemption. In other words, more than enough. I don't care if you're here today and you have a bad back. It doesn't matter. If you come to Christ, and you come before God, and you repent, you turn from your sin, and you turn to Jesus the Savior, God will save you. He will forgive your sins, past, present, future, and he will establish the right standing between you and him. He will reconcile himself to you. Verse 8 says, and he will redeem Israel from all their iniquities. See, Jesus is the promised Savior who actually did redeem God's people from all their sins. He actually did this. And to suggest that God's sovereign purpose to save his people for his glory is conditioned on on the, the feeble will of some fallen human being is against everything the Scripture teaches. Matter of fact, if you, if you just look over to Ephesians chapter 1, you see this over and over again in Ephesians 1. Verse 4, he makes it very plain that our salvation comes totally from God in Ephesians 1. He says, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, verse 4. Verse 5, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of whose will? His will. Look at what it says in verse 9. He made known to us the mystery of his will. It was a mystery until God made it known to you. Have you ever been sharing Christ with somebody, maybe a relative, maybe a friend, and you're praying for him and you're getting frustrated? You think, why don't they come to Christ? Well, guess what? It's not up to you. I mean, you can be slick with all your tracks and all your evangelistic techniques and whatever until God changes that person's heart and shows them their need for a Savior and draws them to himself. Everything you say is, is just blah, 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 blah. It will not affect change in their life. To 
Does that mean we don't go out and share the gospel with people? No, we're commanded to do that. Why? Because we don't know when that person is ready. So we always have to be constantly giving out the gospel. But it says, He made known to us the mystery of His will, dealing with salvation, according to His good pleasure which He purposed in Him. Verse 9. Verse 11 says, In Christ we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, not our own, His, who works all things after the counsel of His will. I'm simply saying that what the Bible repeatedly affirms, even in Revelation 7.10 it says, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. When God purposes that Jesus will save His people from their sins, there isn't any doubt about it. He will do this. He will accomplish this. For his purpose. And to the praise and the glory of his grace. Amen? Amen. Revelation 7.12 says, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Thus, Jesus Christ, who is in God, human flesh, came for the purpose of saving his people from their sins. But thirdly, this is a key question. Whom did he purpose to save? For whom did he purpose to save? Well, it tells us right there in verse 21, doesn't it? To save what? What's it say? His people from their sins. But who are his people? In the context of Matthew, some say, well, his people refers to just the Jews, God's chosen people. And Psalm 130, verse 8 says, He will redeem Israel from all of their iniquities. I just read that to you. But if it means that all Jews will be saved, then we have to conclude that Jesus failed in his purpose. (laughs) Because I know a lot of Jewish people who are not saved. They don't believe in Jesus as the Messiah. They reject Jesus as their Savior. Matter of fact, in Romans chapter 9, verses 6 to 7, Paul points out, For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. Rather, he says, it is those who are of faith. Of faith. Who are the true children, true children of Abraham. Well, some would say that it refers to the whole world here. The Savior is the, the Savior of the whole world. You could say that in some context. There is certainly a sense in which Jesus is the Savior of the world. He's the only Savior the world has in that sense. He's not just the Savior of the Jews. But if his his purpose in coming was to save every person who ever lived, if that was his purpose, I think he failed his purpose. I don't believe and I don't think the Bible teaches that every person on the face of the earth will be saved. But since it's inconceivable that Almighty God could fail... In his eternal purposes, he couldn't fail. He's almighty, he's sovereign, he's all-powerful. His people can't refer to just the Jews. His people can't refer to just every person in the world. 
Some would say that his people refer to all who believe in him for eternal life. I've said that. I agree with that statement. But it, I don't even think that goes far enough. I don't think it goes far enough. Because the Bible says that because of the fall, all men are where? Spiritual darkness. There's spiritual death that has come upon every heart. They're unwilling, they're unable to come to Christ in faith. You know, it's funny when you hear people's testimony, you learn a lot about them. And when someone tells me, yeah, you know, I had this life of sin, and then, and then I finally found Jesus. Well, I didn't know Jesus was lost. I don't think he was lost. So we must ask, why do these people believe in Jesus? The people that he's calling his people. What enables them to believe? What helps them believe? They can't do it on their own. The Bible says that we're dead in our what? Trespasses and sin. I've been to a lot of funerals, my friends, and I've never been to a funeral. And just somebody cried out to the the corpse, hey, you know, get out of there. Quit playing around. Get up and get a, you know, have something to eat here. I mean, well, that would be disrespectful, right? You would never do that at a funeral because why? You know the person's dead. You would be commanding a dead person to do something which is irrational. And yet when it comes to salvation, we think, oh, surely we can figure this salvation thing out on our own. No, we are unwilling the Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. We've created this mentality of the seeker movement that says, oh, people are all seeking after Christ. Well, no. Unless God draws them. They're not seeking after God. They're not seeking after Christ. The Bible's very clear about that. So what enables them to believe? Scripture is clear that the only reason anyone ever believes in Jesus as the Savior and as the Lord is simply because God has chosen them and drawn them to himself. We read that over and over throughout the New Testament. The Spirit of God has quickened them from a spiritual death, right, to spiritual life, from the realm of darkness to the kingdom of light. God has to do that. We can't crawl and claw our way into heaven. It doesn't work that way. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 and 6 says, He's opened their formerly blind eyes to see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. See, if you want to pray for your unlost, your, your lost relatives and friends, pray that God would, would clear their blinded eyes so that they could see the light of the gospel. Because they really can't see it. I mean, think about it. After you get saved, after you have been transformed by God's grace and you understand what it means to know him and you're living for him, you know, and you're trying to share your faith with someone and you're sharing in ways like, all you got to do is do this. Won't you just do this? Just pray this little prayer. Just say this. Just acknowledge this. And, and sometimes we want to make it so mechanical that we forget that clearly... Throughout Scripture, and I'm sure that we've all experienced it, 
In our lives, there are people who have done all those things. They prayed the prayer. They got baptized. They joined the church. They served. They do all this stuff. And then they come out and they say, you know what? I don't believe anymore. I changed my mind. I'm not a Christian anymore. And they walk away from the faith. And everybody goes, whoa, what happened? They're never saved. They just added Jesus to their life. They just added the garb of religiosity, coming to church and learning the language and doing everything that Christian people do. And what do they do? They sneak into the church, like Jude says, and they kind of kind of align themselves with us, only to hear one day, Lord, Lord, haven't we done this? Haven't we done that? Haven't? And they're calling Jesus Lord before the Lord one day. And what, what does Jesus say? He has to say to them, you know what? I'm sorry, I, I don't even know who you are. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I don't want to hear that one day. I don't want you to hear that one day. Well, the only thing that can change that is if God opens our blind eyes to see what Christ has for us. Both saving faith and repentance are both gifts that God grants to his elect. He grants them repentance. You know, you can't repent on your own. It's something God grants to us. And when you stop and you think about it, what a gracious thing it is. I mean, God didn't just provide Jesus and have him born as a little baby, lived his life, died on a cross, resurrected and everything, and then just, okay, if you figure it out, I guess you go to heaven. If you don't, well, you're going to stay in hell. You're going to be in hell one day. Sorry. That's all I'm going to do for you. I did it. I did the Jesus thing on the cross. The rest of you, you've got to figure it out. No, he doesn't do that. He says, you know what? You, you can't figure it out. So I've got to help you. I gotta grant you faith. I gotta grant you repentance. They believe because God granted them faith. So pray for that unlost or that lost uh, loved one. That God would grant them repentance. That God would grant them believing faith. So you have to conclude that His people here refers to those whom the Father has already given to the Son. That's who He's talking about in John six thirty seven. 39, John 17, he talks about his people, namely his elect, whom he purchased for God by his blood, the Bible says. As a matter of fact, Revelation 5, 9, it says, these people come from every tribe and every tongue and every people and every nation. They're not just Jews. They're not just Gentiles. They're from every walk and background They're his people. And there's not a shadow of doubt about it. He will save them from their sins. If it was up to them, they could never be saved. But God stepped in. He did something miraculous. There's one other thing I just want to say about his people that you have to understand. His people, it sounds kind of, I mean, some people hear that, oh, I'm one of God's people. You know, they they kind of add this self-righteousness to the, the whole thing. The other thing you have to understand about his people is they are sinners. They are sinners. His people are sinners. Even when Jesus was on earth, who did he hang out with? Sinners. <laughs> I mean, they, they called him a sinner and a wide bimber. You know, he was hanging. Now, I'm not saying you go down to the bar and get drunk with the, the, everybody. I'm not saying that. 
right? Because you're called to be different. But the church has to wake up and stop thinking of people outside the church as their enemy. They're not their enemy. They're victims of the enemy. They've been taken captive. And we have the solution. We have the gospel. These people are lost. They're alienated from God because of their sin. And in Luke 19.10, Jesus said this, The Son of Man has come to seek and to what? To save that which was lost. You ever wonder why there's so many goofy people in the church? So many people in the church with mixed up backgrounds? Because they're sinners. You know, you come into church and you start acting all self-righteous. You know, I'll never forget, I ask, sometimes I'll ask people, how, how long have you been a Christian? And some people answer this way. Oh, all my life. <laughs> he just lost the answer there, boy. No, you haven't been a Christian all your life. I'm sorry. I know what they mean. They're probably raised in a Christian home. and So you've got to kind of dial down on it, right? You don't want to jump all over them when they say that. Now they're lost, they're alienated from God because of their sin. And Jesus said, you know what, that's exactly who I came for. That's exactly who I came for. In Luke 5.31, he says, it's not those who are called well who need a physician. When's the last time you were doing well? Everything was working, like you're just, you know, like a smooth running clock. Your body's just, everything's firing off. Everything's going great. Do you ever just call the doctor when everything's, hey, doc, you know, uh, I think I better come in. Why? I don't know, but I'm just going to come in. (laughs) No, you don't do that. Why would you want to go to the doctor if you're not sick? Why would you want to go to the dentist if you don't need your teeth cleaned or your filling filled or whatever? You wouldn't do that. You wouldn't subject yourself to that kind of craziness. You would say, no, I'm well. Well, Jesus came for the sick. He came to seek, notice, to seek and to save. Those who are lost. So these people are lost. They're alienated from God because of their sins. He says, it's not for the well I came, but I came for the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's the only people that need to repent. If 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 you're a righteous person, you don't need to repent of anything. You're perfect. Why would you repent of something? But guess what? The Bible says there is no righteous one. There's none righteous. No, not one. Not even one. The only person who ever walked in the face of this earth who was righteous was Christ. Incarnate. God incarnate. So really, when you stop and think about it, if you don't see yourself as a sinner in need of a Savior, if you don't see yourself that way, then when Jesus came to earth, it means nothing to you. Nothing. Why? Why? Because you're not looking for a savior. You don't care if he was born. Why would you celebrate Christmas? If you think you're basically just good, you're a good person, and somehow you're going to get to heaven one day by your own goodness, then guess what? You're not one of Jesus' followers. You're not a believer. You haven't had your sins forgiven. Because Jesus said, I came to save Sinners, and only sinners. So we've seen that Jesus Christ, who is eternal God, took on human flesh to save his people from their sins. His people 
are those whom the Father has given to the Son. The Bible tells us that. He doesn't hope that one day his people will choose him someday. No, it's not up to them to decide. He will accomplish his eternal purpose by saving them. And that leads to the final question here in our outline. What did he do? What did he do? The answer is he actually saved his people from their sins. It's done. It's over with. And by that I mean Jesus' death on the cross was two words. Substitutionary. Jesus died in our place, we say, right? Because like I explained, we couldn't die on the cross even if we could for our own sins because we're not perfect. We needed a perfect sacrifice. Jesus was our sacrifice. He was our substitutionary sacrifice. But secondly, the second word is, and I want you to understand this, the death of Jesus on the cross was not only substitutionary, but it was specific. It was specific. He died in the place of those he came to save. He died for those whom the Father has given to him. He did not offer himself potentially. Jesus doesn't die on the cross and say, okay, if you want to believe in me, then I'll save you. I'm doing this for everybody. And and those people, no, it doesn't say that. Rather, he actually purchased his elect people from the slave market of sin. Revelation 5.9 says, by interposing his blood so that they do not have to pay for their own sins. And it's those whom he purposed to save, that's who got saved. That's whom he saves. And in John 6, 37 and 39, it says, All the Father has given to the Son will, not may, will come to him. And of those, Jesus basically says he will lose none. Not one. Do you know there's not going to be one person in hell one day that thinks somehow they should be in heaven? They're going to understand in the fullness of what hell is. They're going to understand all the times they heard the gospel. They're going to understand that. They're going to understand, well, the God I hated all my life, now I realize that God is perfect love. And yet I can never be part of that. For all eternity. They're going to completely understand the gospel in hell. And they're going to regret for the rest of eternity the idea that they thought somehow they could pull this off on their own. He actually purchased his elect people from the marketplace of sin. The Bible says that Jesus gives eternal life as his gift to all whom the Father has given to him. In John 17, 1, it says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Verse 2, since you have given him authority, the Son, authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Well, what is eternal life? He says in verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You want eternal life? You need to come to know Christ. You need to put your faith, your trust in Christ. 
Stop playing games with your own sacrificial system thinking somehow you're going to work it out in the end. You will not. You will not. You cannot. Or God is a liar. And when it says he will save them from their sins, it's basically twofold there. He delivers or he saves them from the penalty of our sins. That's what he does. That's why in some religions it never doesn't make any sense. They believe that Jesus died, all this stuff about Jesus, but then they make you do all these penalty things, right? They make you do all this stuff. It's like, well, wait a minute. If Jesus paid the price, why do I have to pay for it again and again and again? You don't. You don't. That's the problem with those systems. What is the penalty of our sin? The penalty is eternal punishment in hell. Eternal punishment in hell. That happens instantaneously at the moment a sinner is awakened to believe in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. He saves them from the penalty of hell. The moment you came to Christ, you were, that penalty was taken away. It was washed away by the blood of Christ. Secondly, he saves us from the power, the power of sin. Not just the penalty, but he saves us from the power of sin. We've been talking about this a little bit as far as sanctification. Gradually, progressively, as a believer, we continue to increase our dependence upon the Lord, right? We continue to become more like Christ through a myriad of trials and errors and all these tribulations that God puts in our life. He's he's making us more like Christ, more like his son. And it will not be perfected. That process does not stop until... We see Jesus until either he comes back for us in the rapture or we go to be with him when we die. That's the only time, finally, that we will be in that perfect eternal state. Which we will ultimately be freed from what? The presence of sin. No more sin in heaven. None. I mean, we don't have to question people's motives. We don't have to think of, oh, what if this happened? No, it's going to be a wonderful place, wonderful place. And I would have to say, if, if a person is not growing in holiness, if a person is not growing and striving against sin in their daily walk, they need to really stop and say, wait, did God even make any change in my life? Is this real? Or am I just playing a game? Am I playing church? Because our text is very plain. Jesus will save his people from their sins. My question for you this morning, my friends, is are you one of his people? Are you one of these people? You say, well, how can I know? The answer lies in answering a couple simple questions. Has God opened your eyes to see that you're a sinner? And that you deserve his judgment? Do you understand that? Has God shown you that? If you think you're a pretty good person in God's sight, then you're not one of his people. But if you say, you know what? I know I'm a sinner, and I deserve God's judgment. Then the next question is this. Simply the next question is, have you fled from your sin for refuge from God's judgment to the cross of Jesus Christ? Have you turned your your back on your life? Have you turned your back on your sin? 
and said, you know what, I, I'm all in for Christ right now. I, I'm, I'm going to trust him fully, and I'm going to do whatever he wants me to do with my life. Have you fled for refuge from God's judgment to the cross of Jesus Christ? Are you trusting in his shed blood alone, alone, to pay for the penalty of your sins? Not his shed blood plus church attendance. Not his shed blood plus baptism. Not his shed blood plus doing whatever else. No, alone. That's the only thing that has the power to save you. If you answer yes to those questions, then you need to further examine, is there any evidence, is there any evidence in my life that Christ has saved me from my sins? Is there any evidence? See, it's very possible to say that you have believed in Christ as your Lord and Savior. But it's very possible that you may just have an intellectual faith and intellectual faith does not save. You just know the facts. But you're removed from any transformation from the facts. You have to ask yourself, has God changed your heart? Are you a new person, a new creation in Christ? For those of us who have come to Christ, we understand very clearly that you know what? There was a time in our life where we lived a life that was for ourselves and ourselves only. We had no regard for Christ, no regard for God. We didn't care what Jesus did on the cross. It was irrelevant. We were just all about living our lives. And some of those lives included a lot of religion, which made us kind of feel good about ourselves. But now we love Jesus Christ, and we're flooded with gratitude because we realize that he gave himself up on the cross for us. Before we had no hunger for holiness, we were content to live in disregard of God's commands, but now we still fall in sin. We're not perfect. We're sinners, right? Saved by God's grace. But when we do sin, the Holy Spirit makes sure that we are mourning over our sin, that we are confessing our sin to God, that we are forsaking our sin, and that we are seeking to obey God. That's why we're to know Christ and to know him more and more and more, as, as Philippians 3.9 says. If you can honestly say, yes, those things are true of me, all those things. God has begun a work in my heart, and I see it bearing its evidence in my life. I'm seeing me drawn more to holiness and, and away from sin. I can say with the Apostle Paul, he who began a good work in me will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. I see that happening. If you can say that, guess what? Jesus will save you from your sins. He will. But if you answer no, or you're not sure if Christ has saved you yet, then I would give no rest to your soul. Give no rest to your soul until you know that your faith is in Christ and in Christ alone for your salvation. Don't leave it up to chance. Either your sins are upon you, and you will pay for your sins, or they are upon Christ. If that burden of sin is on you, Jesus says in Matthew 11, verse 28, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest, rest. 
He promised in John 6.37, The one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Jesus doesn't play this bait and switch game. When you come to him with a repentful heart and you want to trust him in Christ, you want to trust in Christ and his sacrifice alone, he will save you from your sins. He will transform you. If you come to Christ, you can know that you are one of his people. And you can know that he saved you from your sin. Father, we thank you for the word this morning from the Gospel of Matthew. And we thank you, Lord, that the work that you've done in each one of our hearts is is truly miraculous. Lord, we would never choose to come to you and and to clean up our lives. In all honesty, we loved, loved our sin too much. We loved ourselves too much. And Father, it was only when you broke through and you cleared the blurriness out of our vision so that we could see clearly our sinful state before a holy God, Father, that you saved us, transformed us, and you're making us more into the image of your Son each and every day. I pray for each heart here, each heart that's listening, even to the the broadcast, Father, that you would help them, that you would take the blinders off, Lord, that you would make them desperate to see your glory. And you would show them their own sinfulness before a holy God and their need to repent, their need to turn from their sin to the Savior. They would cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me. That's a prayer when it's prayed from a sincere heart, when it's prayed from a heart that's broken, when it's prayed from a heart that's desperate. He will hear that, and he will, he will save you from your sin. And Father, this week, as we have many things going on, but Lord, we just pray that you would go before us in everything and last-minute preparations for Christmas and other, other things. Lord, we pray that you would keep our hearts stayed upon you, keep our minds stayed upon you. Help us not to get so caught up in the world this week that we're stressed out and, and can barely... Uh, drag ourselves to church next Sunday, Lord. I pray that this would be a refreshing week, that we could focus on your goodness and your grace in so many different ways in the many blessings. Pray for our fellowship time across the way as well, that you would just bless it. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.